Well, good morning. It is good to be back. I, together with Kevin Swanson and Phil Kaiser, had the privilege of preaching to those who were gathered for Presbytery a few weeks ago and then had the privilege to preach again in South Carolina at Brother Matt Clark's church. But there is just nothing that is the same as being with your family. And so I am glad to be back, glad to see your faces, and glad to share the word with you today. And our passages are Psalm 4 and Psalm 5. I want to encourage you to turn there. And what we're going to see is that these first two form part of a very small section, Psalms 4 through 7, that are considered evening and morning prayers, and they alternate back and forth between each other as prayers in the evening, prayers in the morning. And we're going to read Psalm 4 to start, and then we'll pick up Psalm 5 later. But let's stand as we read Psalm 4 together. Let's honor the Lord by acknowledging that this is His Word. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of speaking forth your word to people that I consider family. And thank you, Lord, for the blessing of being able to share your truth. I pray for those who would hear your words today, that they would hear you, that they would hear your truths and your principles and help them to apply that to their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. And so it makes me want to ask the question, what do you pray for in the evenings? Do you find yourself looking back over the day at the troubles that you faced? Do you find yourself weary and wondering whether God cares about your needs? Well, that's, that's how David seems in Psalm 4. He's found the people are turning away from him, they are turning away from the Lord because the nation of Israel has been experiencing a drought. And in David's time, it was a common belief that if God approved of the king, well, he would bless the people with good weather. But if there was bad weather, well, what's the opposite of that? They felt that the king was in disfavor with God. And that wasn't only true of Israel, it was also true of the surrounding nations Paul, if you recognize that name, he was king of Assyria in the 7th century B.C. This is something that uh, he said, Since the time that I sat on the throne of my father, 
Adad, who was the god of storms, god of rain, has loosed his downpours. Well, what is he saying in that? He's saying that the proof that I was the choice of the Assyrian gods is that since the time that I sat down on the throne, Adad has loosed the rain. And as David ended his day and thought upon the state of his kingdom, he was concerned. See, verse indicates that many were saying, who will show us some good? I'll, I'll show you in just a moment that what they're asking for is rain. So they're saying, who will show us some good? And yet David asks the Lord to, to hear him, to hear David. Answer me, he prays. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Because the people who are praying to God to show them good are praying out of selfish interest. And that's made clear in verse 7 when David responds to the fact that the people most likely who are the men of verse 2, these people, though they have been praying, will only have joy when what happens? When their grain and their wine abound. That's why they won't rain. That's why they're praying to God. To show them some good. Well, at some point, the kingdom of Israel had suffered a drought. And in fact, 2 Samuel 21 may be the context for this psalm. And you can see what we find there. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And we often read a passage like that, quickly go through that, think it's a historical, contextual setting to kind of tell us about the events that are going on. We don't think about that phrase year after year and what this might have implied for David's reign, his popularity, his honor among the people. Psalm 4 helps us understand what happens in that case. So the, the point is that the people here, David's people, are saying, show us some good, verse 6, means bring us rain or else. As commentator Bruce Waltke points out, rain was God's good gift to his people. You find this in Deuteronomy 11, verse 11, but the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. So what's implicit from this passage? It's rain that comes from heaven. And it comes because God cares for the land. And the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments, he says, that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and soul, he will give you rain for your land in the season. Early rain, later rain, and then you may gather in your grain and in your wine and in your oil, right? You see a very direct connection between this and Psalm 4. Isaac's blessing to Jacob in Genesis 27, 28 was, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. You see how that's connected. Dew of heaven, grain and wine. First Kings 8, we find Solomon praying that God would answer the people's prayers for rain. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. See the connection? If they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn away their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive 
the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Obviously, rain, vital to Israel's ability to survive. But there was one condition that Moses had shared with the people found in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 and 12. And that was, he said this, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and bless the work of your hands. So David knew this. He knew and he asked the Lord to hear his prayer. And when you pray at night, as you review the day, do you ask the Lord to search your heart to help you understand if there is any sin which you have not addressed? David pleads in verse 1 that God would be gracious to him. In verse 3, he is confident the Lord will hear him. But just as we saw in 2 Samuel 21, the Lord's blessings are sometimes withheld, not because of your personal sin, but because of the sin of a larger group. And that leads us to verse 2, where we learn that the men, which actually is in Hebrew the phrase men of rank, these are the wealthy, influential men of the nation, these men are turning David's honor into shame means that they had begun to oppose him. And they did it, he says, David says, because they love vain words and they seek after lies. What does that mean? Well, we know from some of the prophetic books in the Old Testament that the phrase is loving vain words, that phrase together with seeking after lies, those were common phrases used to describe people who looked to false gods and to idols. And one of the primary gods of the Canaanites that the Israelites turned to time and again was Baal. You know that name from the Bible. You see it often. Well, Baal was like Adad of Assyria. He was the god of storms. In fact, if you found, uh, archaeologists have found statues of Baal, and in his left hand he holds this crooked or twisted spear. It's meant to symbolize a lightning bolt. And in his right hand, he holds a club, which, you know, when you hit hard on the ground, it makes a noise. It was meant to symbolize a thunder clap. So here was Baal, the god of storms. And to whom are the people turning to? It's Baal. These wealthy, these influential, these powerful men of Israel have turned away from David. They've turned his honor into shame by rejecting the anointed one, the the one whom God has put in authority over them and by rejecting their God, the only one who could truly provide rain for them and they've turned to the God of Canaan, the God of storms. And they had forgotten that God had said, if you will but obey my voice, I will honor my covenant to you and I will bless your land with rain. And we see that word selah at the end of the verse and I, and I told you a few weeks ago, when we see the word Selah, it indicates that you are to take a moment, everybody who's participating in the psalm, whether it's 
the worshipers singing, or it's the accompanists that are playing instruments. They're all to stop and pause and reflect upon what was just said because that's something very important. And so David's question, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies is meant to hang in the air and challenge all who will trust in anything other than the Lord. And so that brings us to verse 4, where David says, be angry and do not sin, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent and again, Selah. Another important statement. And there are four exhortations there. They're to these wealthy and powerful men, but they're really to all of us as we look at what they mean. Be angry is in Hebrew literally tremble or be agitated or anxious. It really doesn't mean to be angry. A lot of times people have said be angry and do not sin. In fact, I've even seen titles of books that have that. But that's not what it's saying here in the Hebrew. It's don't, he's exhorting them, tremble. Be fearful. Be anxious. Do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts. And be silent. These are four things for the people to do to turn in repentance from their lack of trust. That's what's happening in Psalm 4. And so this first exhortation to be trembling or to be anxious, we know in Philippians 4 that says, be anxious for nothing. So what is that meaning here? Well, if you look at the actual verse, it says, be anxious for nothing, But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. So you can only remove anxiety through the peace of God. And that only comes by being right with Him. And so that's why in verse 5 of the psalm, David says, offer right sacrifices. He's not telling them to follow proper ritual. He's not saying you guys are blowing it by offering these in a wrong way. He's saying offer these sacrifices out of a right heart. Out of a heart of faith. Of thanksgiving, like Philippians 4 says. Out of confession of sin. Or as Matthew 5 talks about, being poor in spirit and mourning over our sin. That is what we are to have as a posture. That trembling, that fear, that we are in the presence of a holy God and our sin is serious. Tremble, he says, and do not sin. As you pray at night and ask the Lord to reveal your heart, confess your sins to him. Commit to repentance, to turn away from sin. Be broken over what has happened that would possibly put a wedge between you and a solid intimate relationship with the Lord. And all of this is closely linked to that third exhortation there, which is to ponder in our hearts on our beds. And that word ponder is to meditate or reflect upon. A lot of us, I think, are used to rote prayers at night. Many of us fall asleep in the middle of our prayers. That is not pondering. To ponder is to think deeply about the sins of the day. Are they revealing patterns of thought or motive or behavior? Are you trusting in something or someone other than the Lord? Why do you keep finding yourself in the same sins? 
Can you identify issues of character? Is it the lust of the eyes or of the flesh or the pride of life? That's pondering. That's reflecting and meditating. And last, David says, be silent. It's not referring to suddenly stopping all sound in the scriptures. Being silent refers to listening instead of speaking. Listening instead of speaking. It's stopping all false claims of self-righteousness, like Zephaniah that tells us, be silent in the presence of the Lord God. Why are we silent there? It's because He is holy. It's because we need to listen. In Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. Silence is a submissive posture. When you pray to God at night and when you ponder your sins and confess them to Him, are you ready to listen? Will you hear His rebuke through your conscience or through His Word or through His people? Will you submit to His truth and obey His commands? If you want the blessing of God, you must not turn to false things. Nothing less than faith and repentance and obedience to God will result in His favor. And if there's an overarching lesson to be learned from this psalm and Psalm 4, it is that we, what we find in, in verses 7 and 8. David's joy, your joy, comes from the Lord's favor and not an abundance of grain and wine or anything else material that you value. It is only with this true joy that you are able to lie down and sleep in peace. The people had had turned against David and questioned his legitimacy as king. They had closed their ears to his admonition. They'd started to seek after false gods. But even so, even with so much going wrong, David could sleep in peace. The question is, is that true of you? Can you sleep in peace because you know that you've been set apart by the Lord and that you dwell in the safety of His favor? Let's look now at Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3, where we read, Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And so we see a morning prayer in Psalm 5. We saw an evening prayer in Psalm 4. Assuming you followed the wisdom of that psalm, that you ended your previous day with reflection and confession and prayer, how do you start the next day? With prayer and a renewed hope. As David says in verse 3, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. What will God do today? How will he use you to watch is to suggest that you look to see what God will do with a certain level of anticipation and expectation. And so verses 4 through 6 say, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. 
These verses may seem surprising to follow the comment that David is, is watching to see what God will do. But think about what they imply about David's plans. David knows he needs to align his day with God's values and priorities. And that's the same with you. Every, every weekday morning, Wendy and I, we start our day these, this, these days with doing a devotion together. We have two copies of the same book. And we read the same chapter separately, and then we discuss it with one another. We always end up asking each other how we can be praying for the other. And Wendy doesn't typically ask me to pray that she can get away with stealing things from the local market or manipulating church families into doing volunteer work or to taking advantage of our children. That's just not, I don't think I've ever heard that from Wendy as a prayer request. And that's because her priorities align with the Lord's character. She asks for prayer along the line of doing things with excellence or improving an attitude or maintaining thankfulness in the midst of weariness. Those are good things to have in morning prayer. But maybe as you read verse 5, and, and you've been going along very smoothly here, and then you hit that God hates evildoers. And you recoiled a bit. Does he really hate evildoers? Yes. But let me make two clarifications, one short and one longer. The short clarification is that the word translated as evildoers here is a participle. It refers to someone who has been sinning or doing evil, someone who is continuing to sin, and someone who will continue to sin. It, it's an ongoing action that continues in the present. And it refers to a lost individual. If you trust in the Lord, even though you do continue to struggle with sin, this does not refer to you. For look at Ephesians 2 here in these verses. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world. You were that definition of evildoer. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, the evildoers. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out in that particip uh, like a participle, that, that constant ongoing action of the past and continuing in the present and anticipating the future, the desires of the body, the mind. We were by nature child of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then it's repeated again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. That's the meaning of the word grace, right? It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And it's why we see David's confidence in verse 7 of Psalm 5 where he says, but I, Lord, I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. 
I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. David knows that he has sinned. He's sinned pretty extraordinarily. We, we saw in the books of, of Samuel and, and Kings, right? He has sinned, but what makes him different than the evildoer of verses 4 through 6 is certainly not his works, as Ephesians 2 pointed out, but rather his sole claim to entrance into God's temple is the abundance of God's steadfast, covenanting love. David entered the temple in faith and reverent fear. That is the, that's the difference. The evildoer does not possess that kind of faith or fear. Now, a slightly longer clarification of that verse is to remember God's character. It's important to be reminded of this every once in a while. God, we know, you know from the scriptures, is perfectly holy. He is just. He is wrathful. He is loving. The reason why grace is grace on one side of the coin is because the other side of the coin is justice and wrath. James 4.5 says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, you need to, to come to grips with what that means to be an enemy of God. Before you became a child of God's kingdom, God was your enemy, whether you were consciously his enemy or not. And his plan was this. You were so much his enemy, and he was so much at war with you that someday he would have taken you and separated you from him forever in a state called hell. The Bible says that he is patiently storing up his wrath against those who are evildoers. God, the enemy of the sinner, God at war. It sounds harsh, but it sounds harsh because we usually have a higher view of ourselves than we should. When God created humanity, he created a good thing, a very good thing. He surveyed six days of creation, looked at Adam, he says, this is very good, but friends, don't lose sight of what sin has done in that initial created work. It has perverted and corrupted it. And when I say that God is the enemy of the sinner, I don't imply that he is the enemy of human beings in general. He is the enemy of sinful, rebellious human beings. And second, the reason why this verse is often harsh is we don't like to think of God as anything but loving and gracious. We don't like to think of him as judging. In fact, it's very convenient to say New Testament God is love and grace and the Old Testament God is harshness, and wrath as if there are two gods, right? Or as if God's character changes. And it's certainly not the statement that we like to hear in churches today. There are other passages that say similar things. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, he hates. Okay, so now it's twice. There are more. I'll just put one more there. Proverbs 6.16, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And then the last two on the list in that passage are a false witness who speaks lies, one who sows discord among the brethren. And those types of verses are hard to listen to. They make us feel uncomfortable. 
We tell our children, don't use the word hate. And then we think, well, we shouldn't use that of God either. How could he hate something? He doesn't like it. He feels uncomfortable. No, that's not the sense of abomination. It's not the sense of detesting or hating. We don't, friends, find sins in hell. We find sinners in hell. And thank the Lord that we have comforting passages like Ephesians 2 that we read earlier. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians, if you have turned away from your sin and turned toward God and faith, you have, he says, become, become the righteousness of God in Christ. And that is a true comfort because even though you continue to struggle with sin, God has already wiped your ledger clean. He's already delivered his verdict once for all 2,000 years ago, and Christ suffered the penalty of God's wrath and justice and hatred against that sin. But know this, if you were still lost, if you had not turned in trust and faith to Christ, if you were not his child and his righteousness were not imputed to you, God will stand against you. And you will be an abomination to him and you will one day suffer that wrath and judgment. It's very important that we not lose the truth of what the Bible teaches in this day and age. And so in Psalm 5, 8 through 10, we read, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. I think the important part of this is that David wants to have no part in the fate that will befall the evildoer. We'll talk about imprecatory prayers in some of the later psalms. There's a place in which we champion God's justice as we look out at the evil and the wickedness of the world and we pray that God's justice would come swiftly and thoroughly. But the point that we want to take out of this is that David wants to have no part in the fate that will befall these enemies of his. These enemies that are challenging him. That may even be tempting him with flattery. That's why he's talking about their, their words that flatter. They are a distraction. They are a temptation to mislead him with lies. And so David prays every morning, Lord, make your path straight for me. Guide me along the narrow road. Help me to make the right choices. Help me to disregard and step around the things that are these distractions. And do you... Do you hear an echo of Psalm 1 here? Even Psalm 2. Lord, help me make the right choice. Keep me in your way as a tree planted by your life-giving water. Don't let me walk in the path of the sinner. Don't let me be distracted by the words of the scornful or sit with the mockers. Lord, even though my enemies are raging and plotting against you and your anointed one, and and even though I am as your child a part of that, and 
And they are trying to destroy me, yet keep me faithful. That's what you hear in David's prayer. Is that your prayer in the morning? Do you love the things that God loves? Don't delight in sin because evil cannot coexist with God's presence. As 1 John 3, 9 reminds us, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, God has, through His grace, forgiven our sin. He has put in us a new heart. And part of that reflection at night on the previous day, part of that commitment in the morning as we pray to our God, is that we will not be found among the boastful and the prideful. As, as he says in verse 5, the boastful will not stand before God. We will not find ourselves with the liars because as verse 9 says, the end of the liar is destruction. We will not be flatterers. We will not be manipulators. For David says that that kind of speech is like having an open grave for a throat. No, we want to be a people that are cleansed from all this defilement. We want to be a people who desire and delight to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so with that as a background, what do you think when you read the final verses of Psalm 5, 11 and 12? But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. It's all by grace. But the great news of the gospel is that God has not only forgiven us, but he protects us. That he blesses us. That he covers us with his favor as with a shield. We saw how he withdraws his favor in Psalm 4 from those who turn away from him and turn towards false gods and false hopes. But he protects his people and shields them with favor. And that sure sounds good to me. Psalm 4 said we have peace with God. But we also have joy. We also have blessing. And we didn't do anything of our own, to change God's feeling towards us from disfavor to favor. What changed God's feelings? In his posture, it was the perfect work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans that you stand by grace alone in the presence of God. David said, I am able to go into the temple, but I don't go there with a pride of self. I go to the temple knowing that it is only through my Savior. By his substitution, as we read in Colossians 1, Christ made peace through the blood of the cross. And here's the rest of that verse from Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That act of Christ so fully accomplished peace with God. And you need to read that into Psalm 4. When David says, 
I have peace with God and I lie down and am able to sleep. This is why, because Christ has so fully accomplished peace with God for you from now on that you are forever holy, blameless, unreproachable in His sight. Why? Because every sin that you should have been punished for, Christ bore. Romans 4 says that God reckoned all of that sin to to Jesus' account and reckoned His righteousness to be ours. And so the Father now loves us because we bear His righteousness. And perhaps now we better understand a passage like this in 2 Corinthians 5. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he has given us that ministry of reconciliation. That's what's driving David in the midst of Psalm 4 to exhort these men who have so wrongfully turned away from the truth. Yes, there are imprecatory prayers, but there is also intercessory prayers. And that intercession there, that warning, that sharing of the truth is important. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation. You are to share that as an ambassador of Christ. And in Hebrews 10.10, and following we read, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And I want you to hear that. It goes back to the earlier when I was trying to clarify for you that you are not, if you are of God, you are not the evildoer of Psalm 5.5, even though you continue to sin. Because Jesus, by one sacrifice, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Being sanctified means being made holy, means learning to, to die ever more to sin, learning not to walk in the habits of the flesh, learning to be more and more like Christ. Forever, friends. In God's eyes, you have been perfected. And so in Romans 8, we have this great final admonition, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's asking who's going to indict us? Who's going to bring us to trial? Why? Because it's no use. God's already justified. He will justify us. You know the answer there. Who is to condemn? Well, there's nobody there because Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that who has been raised who is actually your advocate. He is your intercessor. They're pleading for you. Who is God going to listen to? Not someone who's going to try to bring a charge against you. Jesus is already pleading your case. And so this is the good news of being a child of God. It was the good news that comforted David despite difficult times and opposition. It's also what Christ exemplified as he faced the trials of his life. 
And it's the same attitude that I exhort you to have. And you start with that attitude by beginning and ending your days with thoughtful, meditative prayer that seeks God's direction, reviews your day, confesses sin, and pleads for God's gracious favor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for loving us, for blessing us, for giving us so much more than we deserve. We were, as Paul says, once slaves and dead in our trespasses, and we were, as all of these things that we read in Psalm 4 and 5, we were set for destruction. We were like the boastful and the liar and the manipulator and the flatterer. There was no peace for us. You were set against us. And yet we were continuing in our sin to follow vain things and to listen to lies. And yet you saved us. You called us by a new name. You imputed to us the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. You invite us into your presence and you cover us as a shield with your favor. And so like David, we say that our joy abounds more than any material good thing could bring joy to us. Like David, we say that we can sleep in peace, no longer being anxious over our sin because you have given us your peace. So Father, help us to have that same prayer of David to to look out at what we once were and to look out at those who still are the enemies of your kingdom, those who are bound for destruction. And Father, help us to pray for your guidance and favor. Direct us, we pray, Lord, along the paths of righteousness so that we may enter your courts with praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.